Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Linda Domus with Keller Williams Realty in Whittier, California. Last year, she closed 70 transactions with a total sales volume of $30 million. Her average sales price was $428,000, of which 25% were buyers and 75% were sellers. She has a six-member team, one listing buyer specialist, one buyer specialist, one buyer specialist administrative assistant, one transaction coordinator, one marketing tech specialist, and one team leader. Linda Domus is the team leader of the Domus team. She's been an agent for 38 years. In her best year, 2001, Linda sold 103 homes worth $40 million. She's sold over 2,000 homes in her career. In this call, Linda talks about failing her first licensing exam and not selling a home for her first six months, gaining traction by marketing to her sphere of influence, why she's selling higher-priced homes faster than average, how she's moving into the luxury market, her geographic farm marketing plan, how to stand out in your farm by doing something very few attempt, the best marketing piece she ever used, how she generates 60% of her business from family, friends, and past clients, why she dropped the big annual client party and started doing cluster parties, detailed description of her past clients and sphere of influence marketing plan, her indirect referral script, how to work with your spouse, opening a brokerage, team dynamics, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Linda. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Hey, Linda. It's great to have you here. Linda, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. I was a college dropout that sold bras and girdles at Sears and Roebuck. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and how long did you do that for? I sold, I sold lingerie for five years at Sears. And then did you go into real estate right after that? Well, what happened was my husband's uncle was in the business. And as when my husband and I were dating, I was working and I was going to school. And my husband's uncle just told me, you would be a really great realtor. And honestly, I thought, gosh, that sounds like something boring that my parents would be into. Because I was only a 21-year-old kid at the time. But he just bugged me, bugged me, bugged me. And there was a licensing training school at his company. So I finally just went to one of the classes just to get him to stop bugging me. And the minute I sat in that class, I was hooked. Did you get into the business full-time or part-time? I started part-time. In fact, the first year when I finished licensing school, actually the first time I took my test, I failed my test. 
I was so humiliated, it took me a year to retake the exam. And I was sitting home, and my husband and I had just had our first child, and I had a three-month-old baby. And I sat there and I thought, my goodness, if something happened to my husband, I wouldn't be able to support myself and this child by selling bras and girdles. So I became serious, got my license when my son was about four months old, and at the time, could not quit the job at Sears because we had just bought a house. So I was working at Sears part-time in real estate. So I definitely started part-time. How long before you went full-time? It took me about six months to go full-time. So about six months afterwards, because I definitely was not an overnight success. Sounds like it was a slow start. What made the difference? What changed it so that it would improve? Well, what happened was it took me six months to sell my first house. And that house fell out of escrow the day after it sold. And I look back on it and I really feel like that was really, really good training for me because it taught me perseverance. And once I got that home resold, I ended up selling two more that month. And I closed three escrows then, which would have been my seventh month of real estate. And then that's when I quit the job at Sears. And never looked back. Never looked back. And the good thing was that was actually when I started doing my repeat and referrals because my first clients were all of my old colleagues at Sears. So tell us about that. It sounds like you looked at a group of people that you'd been working with and you turned them into your first database. Absolutely. And one of the things that I used to do is I used to look at, I would watch training tapes. I had a, I had put my license with a broker. It was a mom and pop shop that didn't have grandkids, and they loved the fact that I would bring my baby and, and let him play on the floor. And at that time, in 1976, it was all video. So I would watch John Lumlow and just sit there and watch the tapes, and he would talk about the importance of building a referral base early on and every, letting everybody you know know that you're in real estate. So at that time, I just um, I had everybody's addresses because I had had a big wedding. We had a big wedding, so I already had their addresses. So I created a mailing list, which at that time was typewriter labels because we didn't have computers. <laughs> <laughs> it was your wedding invitation list. It was my wedding invitation list, then my Christmas card list, and soon turned into my everybody I knew list. How long have you been in real estate? I've been in real estate for 38 years, actually since 1976, so my 39th year will be in July. And how many homes did you sell last year? Last year we sold 70 homes worth $30 million and with an average sales price of 508000 How many homes did you sell in your best year and what year was that? My best year was in 2001. We sold 103 homes and did $40 million in production. How many homes do you think you've sold in your career? I've sold over 2,000 homes, Mike. Linda, where is Whittier, California? Whittier, California, it's uh, actually in southeastern Los Angeles County, and it's on the border of North Orange County. Whittier is the home of President Nixon. And as I like to say, we are halfway between Disneyland and Hollywood. So we see a lot of fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) Linda, please describe your current real estate market. It's interesting you ask this because I I actually think we're, we're in a stable market with signs of a slight decrease. 
the average sales price in Whittier is 428000 Our average sales price as a team is 508000 So we are working in the high middle range. However, we are moving strongly into the luxury market, and we are taking more million-dollar home listings. The average days on the market for our team is 47. It's 88 is an average in our marketplace, so we cut that by almost half. But ours is actually a high middle range, and the high middle range uh, geographic farm that we really have concentrated on for many, many years is now turning into a feeder farm for the luxury farm that we've been cultivating lately. You mentioned that your average sales price is higher than the market, and yet your days on the market is almost half of the average. Usually when you go up in price, it slows down. What do you attribute your faster sales to? First of all, we stay really, really on top of our clients. And with 75% of it, seller representation, we do a high degree of marketing. So we do a high degree of marketing. We know all of our comparables inside and out as a team. And I really feel one of my strengths is negotiating to get that seller the highest price. When that seller hires me, I tell them my job is to get you the most money so that when you walk out of here, you won't feel like you left any money on the table. So the strength in negotiating, the fact that with the experience, we're able to get some of these appraisals in at value, I think is the benefit. And we do stay on top of things so that we make sure and try to get everything sold quickly. Lydia, you also mentioned that you're moving into the luxury market. How are you going about doing that? How are you moving from the high middle to the luxury market? Well, it's a natural transition for us geographically because the luxury market borders on the high middle range that we've mainly concentrated on. And that luxury market has really been dominated for many years by a couple of realtors and one office in particular. One of the awesome things that happened when we opened our new office 15 months ago was the fact that we were able to take some of the tools from this franchise and some of the talent that we've pooled together to really push the luxury brand. So what's happened is we're able to gain market share. My husband and I do belong to the country club that's right in the middle of the luxury market. We're very active in that club. My husband's involved on the board, runs a lot of golf tournaments there. So we have been positioning ourselves to move into that market. And so far, especially the last 18 months, we've showed some real success with that. Linda, do you have a niche or a specialization in your market? Geographic farming really accounts for about 20%. So the geographic farming is very, very strong. We are very deep in that farm. So one of the things we always say is that we want to make sure that we can become the, the realtor for life of the people that are in the farm. When you put the repeat and referral from the past clients in the sphere of influence, that actually last year came out to about 60% of our business. So we work very, very hard to stay in touch with those past clients and just make them know that we appreciate them and we do want their business. And then our SEO, we've been really beefing up our SEO with online reviews, with a lot of things that we've done. We work a lot with Facebook and social media to stay in touch with past clients. And then it ends up translating into the the SEO. So that's been a big help for us as well. It's accounted for about 15% of our business last year. You've mentioned you've been working a geographic farm for a while. It's the upper middle part of the, the market. How did you pick this farm? Interesting. In 1978, we moved into this middle range market and... One of the things that I did was 
I wanted to make sure and farm where I lived because at the time that's what realtors did. And there really wasn't a, an, a predominant realtor in that market. So I had learned a lot about farming from Tommy Hopkins and John Lumlow and some of the t- sales trainers that were that day. And one of the people, of course, that I would say was a huge influence on my decision to do that was Daniel Kennedy, who is just an, an amazing, amazing trainer and has become a friend of mine. So what I did was I walked around delivering items with my kids when they were in strollers. So I found out the number one marketing tool in a geographic farm is scratch pads because of the shelf life and you get 25 times on a scratch pad to remind people of who you are. So by doing that, and that's still the strongest marketing piece that we still use is the scratch pad in the geographic farm. How big is the farm? How many people are in there? How many homes? Our original size of the farm was 500. So we started with 500 because that's really what I could walk around with in the stroller comfortably and handle. (laughs) Remember, this is before computers. This is before fax machines. This is before emails. A lot of this. So we started with 500. Then we expanded to about 1,000. Then we went to the next group, 1,500s, because we found that we were overlapping and there was areas that we were missing. So right now, what we're doing now, we're, we're actually expanding with the luxury. We're actually concentrating now on raising to 5,000, just because of the way that we're able to maximize with some of the things that we have, especially like cross-communication. So actually, it originally started at 500, and now it's more like 5,000. It sounds like you just recently bumped it up to 5,000. That's correct. I'm assuming also that one of the reasons you expanded so widely was because some of the delivery methods, uh, maybe every door direct mail, is, is that one of the reasons you were bumped it up? Yes. EDD made a lot of difference. Once we were able to go EDD, it really made a huge difference. And it also was a situation where I saw that my competition was mailing more because I think we went through a, a transition where, and depending where your market is, our market is not a paperless market, let's say, like Rob Levy's in Portland, Oregon, or some of the people that are in tech areas. We are not a paperless market. We're still a lot more print media, and our average age in this area is probably 45 years old. So we have a, a, an older, more graying market, especially in that luxury market. We found that we had to go back to using traditional methods. So the Every Door Direct, really bumped it up to where we're able to cover more with less money. Last year, was the farm basically 1,500? Last year, the farm was basically 1,500. That's correct. And out of the 1,500, you had about 20% of the closings, so maybe 14 closings. So like one out of 100, and that generated about $6 million in sales volume. So now we have a kind of a picture of the farm and how big it is and what kind of production came out of it. Let's do this, Linda. Let's talk about how you're staying in touch with these folks. You've mentioned scratch pads. Could you kind of walk us through your geographic farming marketing plan? What do you do with these folks over the year, in the course of a year, to stay in front of them? The first thing that I do is I send out a 2014 report right away in January. Our goal is to touch everybody in our farm once a month. So somehow we want to touch them, whether it be by mail, by delivery, by email. So the first thing we do is we send out a postcard at the beginning of the year to everybody in the farm that tells them the year in review. 
So it gives them the advantage of knowing really what happens. So we send out a, a year in review. They get a year review of actually the total of what our team did. In February and every other month, we send out something called what's happening in our neighborhood. It's um, a little bit of a non-traditional method, but we actually deliver the scratch pad in the neighborhood, and the scratch pad is, has a flyer inserted in it with the, what's happening in the neighborhood. We get it delivered by a nonprofit group. It is a group that it's actually the organization is called Help for Brain Injured Children, and they go out into the area with their teachers, and they make this money. So we pay that group to have it delivered, and we publicize to the farm that we're giving back and that these are the people that are delivering to their farm. So we do that every other month because that gives the money back to the charity. And people really, really like that. A lot of people in this farm area are involved in this charity. The charity is actually located inside of the geographical farm, so it's a win-win for everybody. So we do the delivery, but we also take the scratch pad with the flyer and we mail it to all the absentee owners so that we don't miss anybody. Do you drop the scratch pad off to all doors, whether they're owner-occupied or not? Yes. What do you do in the off months? The, you said that starting in February, every other month you're delivering the scratch pad with the flyer inside. What are you doing in the opposite month? We do, once per quarter, we take a section of the geographical farm. Now, we won't do this in the high-end farm, but the farm that we increased the 1500 that we've done regularly we do a garage sale. So we break the farm up into four zones. And every quarter, we have a major neighborhood garage sale in that farm. And we advertise it. We let people know ahead of time what the date is. We block the date out so that they can get ready for it. What we do is we advertise the garage sale. We let them know that their neighbors will be participating. We advertise it in the penny saver, and we only advertise cross streets. And then we let people know that we'll be setting up their signs for them, taking their signs down. And anything that they have left over, we take the moving truck around, pick up the items, and then we donate that to charity. People love this. They really love it. They call and say, when's our next garage sale? When's our next garage sale? And it's really, really a way to get deeper into your geographic farm. Anything else that you're doing to stay in front of the people in the farm? We send just listed and just sold on everything in the farm. So we send 500 around each one. So people are always getting a postcard from us. We also have emails that we send out and the market updates. So we send emails, let people know the updates. When we get their email address, we put them into Top Producer, put them on the market snapshot. And I also... With the open houses, I definitely hold open houses in my farm because it just helps you to deepen the relationships. So um, we have client events. We are having, uh, for example, we're going to have a shredding event in April called Spring Cleaning. So the garage sales in February, the shredding event will be in April right after tax time. So we're going to have a shredder come to our office. Our office is actually also located in the geographic farm. So that'll be more ways to stay in touch. Sounds like you're really involved with nonprofits. A couple questions for the folks that are going out and helping you distribute 
your scratch pads, did you go to them to set up that arrangement or did they come to you? We went to them because we had originally had a school district do it, but then they disbanded that program and they had gone to us. So we were looking for another opportunity. We found that a lot of the our competition that was delivering things door to door, it was not handled properly. People were tramping over people's flowers or putting things in inappropriate places. So we didn't want that. So we wanted to control that. So that's why we went to the school district and we did print. We had a couple of people, you know how sometimes people will call and say, oh, you left this on my porch, I don't like it. And I'll say, oh, I'm sorry. You know, that was delivered by Help for Brain Injured Children. And then they're like, oh, 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 I'm sorry. Never mind. Thank you very much. <laughs> so it is a win-win. And you mentioned the quarterly garage sales. Just so I, I get a good picture of it, everyone's doing their own garage sale out of their own garage. It's not in one central location, correct? That is correct. And that makes it a lot easier because we don't price anything. We don't get involved in any of the sale. We don't handle money. We don't do anything like that. Everyone's doing their own sale. I actually learned this from my dear friend, Kathy Apples, who was a star power star as well. She started this, and I don't know where she got the idea, but I started doing this probably 20 years ago because there's a lot of reasons that you want to do this. Number one, what happens is, especially in an area where you have older clientele, as people age or pass away, you find out that sometimes the person that you had the relationship with when you were knocking door to door is not necessarily the decision maker when they go to sell a property. So that was very, very obvious up front. And so we were seeing that because we were finding out sometimes when a property would change hands, we wouldn't get the call that we weren't reaching the right people. So what happens is when you have garage sales, you tend to meet more of the decision makers and find out what's really going on house to house. For example, they'll have a garage sale when you find out that they're cleaning out mom's house because she's gone into a rest home. So the adult children will come in. Then you will be able to meet them. Linda, please describe your scratch pad. You said it's one of your best marketing pieces. Could you describe it to us? Yeah. It's just one of those long, skinny scratch pads. I don't really even know what the size is. I've got one in front of me. It's actually got my husband in my picture. At the top, it says Linda and Tim Domus, the Domus team, with our logo, which is experience isn't expensive, it's priceless. And then it has our web addresses, whittierhomes.com, friendlyhillshomes.com, which is a luxury market, and uh, lahabrahomesonline.com, which is the neighboring city that we also market to. And then it says call for free estimate of market value at the very bottom. So it's long and skinny. I went with this size because people love it because it's perfect for grocery lists. And it fits well in a number 10 envelope. Perfect in a number 10 envelope. You're right, Mike. So this is about a third of a sheet of paper. If someone were to look at a normal 8.5 by 11 piece of paper, this is a third of the size of a piece of paper, right? That's correct. Do you use lines on yours or do you leave it blank? No, blank. No lines. Do you have a call to action on the bottom for a, a free market analysis? Is that a phone call in or do they go to a website? It just says call for free estimate of market value. We put call on there. We have a phone number. We also have the web address. But it's interesting to say we are really more of an old school market. And so the phone is always the best place because of the phone number. And we're finding now that that works really well 
Now we get a lot of text messages. So sometimes, you know, people will go to the email or the they will go to the, it's got the email address, it's got the web address. But we still put the call because of the fact that we are finding that a lot of people go to the web. When we send out the garage sale notices, for example, we ask if email is the preferred method because we really do want people's email addresses. But it's on there for the email. And then we always send the, the scratch pad out with a positioning piece. So, for example, the what's happening in our neighborhood has information on it on the active pending and closed escrows within the last two months. And then there'll be information there about email and market analysis by computer. You mentioned on the scratch pad you have the web addresses, and you mentioned there are several. You also mentioned you're moving into a, a second farm. Are you treating them all as one farm since they're so close geographically? In other words, are you sending out two different scratch pads with two different designs, or is it simply one design you're sending out to both geographic areas? What we do is the scratch pad is the same. The difference is what goes in the scratch pad and the method. For example, in the luxury market, we don't deliver it door-to-door. That would not be something, especially some of the areas are gated, so that would not be something that we do. So what we do is we send out a little bit different type of a marketing piece that goes in the scratch pad because we also send those out now every other month, and that's going out by mail. Obviously, you could probably tell we're investing a lot to take over that market. So it's a little bit higher budget because of the higher average sales price. So what we do is we send that out with the scratch pad and put a positioning piece in there. So the scratch pad's the same. It's just what goes in the scratch pad and the method of delivery that differs. You mentioned emails, and then you have quite a few email addresses from the folks in your farm. How did you get those email addresses? We got the email addresses in several ways, one of them from the garage sales that we saved. A couple of things we did is we sent out a client appreciation form. We sent the client appreciation form out and told people if they sent it back that they'd get a gift certificate for Starbucks, which we sent back. Sometimes if people call and they have questions, we'll get email addresses that way. We gather email addresses during open house, during client events. So that's the biggest thing we do when we call. Sometimes I say, just want to update your information and just make sure we have the correct email so we can keep you updated on what's going on in that market area. Some people don't have email in our market, which is hard to believe in this area, but they're just getting it. Or, you know, sometimes it changes, so it's not perfect, but it is something that's consistent. And then what we do is once we have the email address, we put them on our this for market snapshot and we just give them their updates. And we find people really like our updates because they really want to know what's going on in their neighborhood. So you've put together your email list homegrown. You've added to it yourself one by one until you've built it up. You did not go out and purchase a list from some list provider of the emails for your area. No, we don't. How big is your list? What percentage of the market were you able to get the emails for? You got Basically, until this just recently, you have 1,500 households. How many of those did you get email addresses for? From the email address from the 1,500 households, I'd say we probably have 1,000, so we have a ways to go to get all the email addresses. So we still have a way on that. In the luxury market, we don't have as many because that's new. And there, you know, I do also have more information that I use. Some of it is confidential information that you have to be really careful 
with because I have access to things that in the luxury market, everything is different. Everything, the way you market, what you do, how you approach them, it's a whole different strategy of how you handle because more people in the luxury market are very, very concerned to privacy. They don't like to share all their business. It's totally different. So I do more face-to-face contact, handwritten personal notes. We do more black tie events in that market. It's a a totally different strategy for marketing. And in your farm, your base farm that you've been working, you mentioned you also send out just listed and just sold cards. Could you describe those cards to us? Basically, we have it done by something called Michael Lewis Marketing Suite. It's a Keller Williams company. It's a little bit larger than a basic postcard because we do send them out in EDDM. So it's a little bit larger. It's a matte finish. It's got information on the house on the front, and then it's got information on the back. The information on the back is going to be information about our team. So we we advertise the house we just listed, just sold, and a, a couple of photographs that peak attention. And on the reverse side of that, we put information from our team as far as removing truck, anything that we find that'll be beneficial. Of course, the just listed and just sold are definitely a call to action. So free market analysis. So that's what we do on the just listed, just sold. Sometimes if we're really, really busy, we'll put two at a time in the same area. Because for example, in November, when we took eight listings, we doubled up on some of these. And that was really good because you double up a little bit and then people say, wow, they're selling everything on our neighborhood. On those postcards, the just listed, just sold, you mentioned you do have a call to action. You're offering a a free market analysis. Is that by phone as well? Or do you also have that by a webpage that they can go to? Uh, We definitely have it by a webpage. So it's on market snapshot that they can go in and they can just put their address in and we can send them a free computerized market analysis. We do that all the time, and that's becoming more and more common that people are are going there and they're looking at that because, you know, people can go in on their email. It's another way that we get email addresses from people is that they will, sometimes they'll just Google us and they'll go right to the website. That's happening more and more. They'll just Google and go right to the website, fill out the form and just say, I'm just interested, send me computerized market analysis, then we get it and we get it going. Is there any unique message that you have on the marketing pieces that you're sending out? For instance, do you mention that you're the area specialist? Is there anything unique that you've created over the years to identify you as a standout or as an expert? Yes. I've always identified myself as the area expert, and I've always said from day one that your best advertising, bar none, is a yard sign. So... Everything that you do is done to make sure that you have a yard sign up because that's the goal. That is the goal when you are in geographic farming because what you want is people to call you and say, I want you to come out and list my house because I see your signs everywhere. And that happens a lot. So every marketing effort, everything that you do is to get that yard sign up. And when people tell me they don't want to sign, very rare cases that because I say the sign is your best source of advertising. It still is. Yes, there's the internet, but people are going to drive by something. If it's a geographical location, that's the first thing that they're going to notice. So one of the things that we've been able to do, we brand ourselves as the area expert because when we send out the what's happening in the neighborhood, we show the statistics, we show the market share, 
we show everything that's been listed and sold, but then we show people who we've represented and what we've done. And some of our positioning pieces show us, for example, the average days in the market at 88 and then ours being at 47. So we put that out and, and basically they see the statistics and they, they know we are the experts. It's funny, I have one nickname. There's a street called Janine Drive that runs right smack dab in the middle of the luxury farm all the way through the 1500 farm. And I've got a nickname up there called the Queen of Janine. So <laughs> I, I got really, really lucky. <laughs> now, did someone else label you with that or did you label yourself? No, no, no. Somebody else did. It was one of, my, one of our past clients. He just said, oh, here comes the Queen of Janine, and then people just started saying it. I do not advertise myself as the Queen of Janine because I just think that's cheesy. I just let other people call me that and just be very, very happy that I'm called that. Linda, are all the pieces you send to your farm branded, or do you also send unbranded pieces? Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Does everything have your name, number, picture? It's very obvious that it's coming from you. Or do you send any pieces in that are just generic offers for, say, a free market analysis or a free list of homes? Oh, like stealth for like for stealth site? Yes. Yeah. No, everything's branded. We brand everything. And I know that there's a lot of people, they've had a lot of success doing things like that, like with CoreLogic and other things. We have not done that because we're not seeing the numbers Name recognition is still our best. It's still our best asset. Linda, you mentioned you're presently opening up this new luxury farm as well as expanding your farm because of the the new mailing services that are out there. If someone were to start a farm, one of the questions they'd have is, how long does it take to start to see results? You're right in the middle of it, of opening up this luxury farm. How long do you think it'll be before you start breaking even and seeing results? We took a lot of our profit this year to expand not only into the luxury, but our entire team. And I'm looking at somebody in another area and looking at what this person has accomplished in two years, which is phenomenal in the luxury market. So I kind of use that to track. We're seeing a return already because we started this in earnest probably last year, but we're hitting it harder now. So we started introducing into that. But this year, we're really spending more money and beefing up marketing. So, for example, I think we took four listings in that luxury market last year and four closings. This year, we have already have two listings right away, and we have two verbal commitments for two more. So now we're going to end up getting probably four listings within the first quarter. The advice that I would give anybody starting a farm is, you want to do whatever you can to get your first listing. And that's what I'm going to call your beachhead. So you want to get a listing, even if maybe it might be overpriced, maybe it might be not the prettiest listing, but you want something that you can create and springboard off of. And that's how you take it because you want to start branding yourself. Once you get your first listing, that's the ideal thing to do. If you don't have a listing in wherever you want to farm, oftentimes you can get an out-of-area agent that will allow you to hold their listing open in the area that you want to start concentrating on. Then you can start branding yourself that way, and then you can do it. But you want to make sure that your goal is to get your first listing in that area. So whatever you do, just get one. Once you get one, you got to front load it and hit it really, really hard. How would you promote that first listing? Just listed cards? What else would you do? When you start in the farm, 
in an area, you've got you've got to get real down and dirty. So you want a door knock. You want a door knock. You want to meet everybody in that area. So when you pick a farm, let's say you start with 500, you want to go as deep as you possibly can, as quick as you possibly can. Because what I tell agents and agents in our office is you have to remember that every single person that you ever meet has the ability to either buy, sell, or refer somebody to you. If they're not going to buy or sell, they're going to at least know three people a year who will. So if you start building a relationship with the people in that farm area, you're not only going to get their sales, their purchases, but you're going to get their friends' business. You're going to find out when their kids buy. You're going to find out when their mom has to go in a rest home and that you have to sell her house in the next town. Anytime you build a geographic farm, don't just look at it for the turnover rate. Look at it for how many transactions you can get per person because of the relationship. Any other advice that you would give to someone that's thinking about starting a geographic farm? It depends on what your budget is. If you've got a big budget, you can go harder and bigger. So you can do a lot of mailing. You can do like what we call an eight and eight, eight by eight, which is mail eight times in eight weeks. And at the end of the eight weeks, they think you're the expert. So you can do that. If your budget is small, Door knocking, phone calls, note writing, anything. That doesn't cost anything. My advice would be to start small with 500, knock all the doors, talk to the people, and start doing the garage sales right away because nobody's really doing that, and you're showing people something free. And people say, well, what do you do when you knock on the door? What script do you use? And I say, well, you know, you don't want to knock on a door and ask people to sell your house because that's what they're going to think. I said, the best script I ever heard was just say, hi, I'm just knocking on my door. I want to let you know about the the new listing we have down the street. And I just am in the area just wanting to know if you have any questions on real estate because people are going to say, wow, this is different. I just think the hard sell approach, it works really well for a lot of people. And in fact, most of the training out there is really, really hard sell, cold calling. It's got to be somebody that's got to buy in 30 days. I do understand that, but it's really more about relationship building if you want to stay in this business for the long run and really reap the benefit. Linda, you also mentioned open houses. Are you doing open houses just inside your geographic farm as a way to expand your, your reach inside the farm and the branding, people that know you there? Or are you also doing open houses outside your farm? Yes, most of my open houses that when I hold my open house personally, it's either in my geographic farm or it is in the new luxury farm. And, you know, Mike, one of the important things, a lot of agents have gotten away from open house. And I did that for a while as well because I thought, oh, you know, we can let somebody on the team sit on it. But what I found is that you are 70% more persuasive in person. That is one of the reasons, the first reason why. I do the open houses because people would walk into open houses and see the open house and they were just, I found they're disappointed when they walk in and it's not me. And that's fine. You have to leverage yourself as well. But face-to-face contact is extremely important, whether it be open house, whether it be work with a difficult seller or a buyer, that face-to-face is very, very, very important. So I hold open houses for that reason. The other reason that I hold the open houses is because I want to show a point of difference. 
I want to be visible. And when people walk into an open house, I feel that it's our job to educate the public on the schools and the community. So that's very, very important. You want to know, and a new agent, by the way, Mike, can do this, and they, they can be the veteran. If you go in an area and you're going to start farming, know everything about the schools. Know the test scores. Go down to the schools and ask the principal if you can have a tour. They will love it. Tell everything that you can because most people, when they're going into an open house, they're going to be really interested in the schools and the community. Even if they don't have kids themselves, if you talk about the schools and they say, well, you know, we don't have children, say, well, what about the resale value of the school district? And they go, oh, well, then please tell me more. So I do that because I want to be a point of difference. A lot of people will come into our open houses and say they already have an agent. And sometimes it's a brother-in-law or outside agent that really doesn't know anything about our marketing area. They'll sign in the guest book or sometimes won't. And you'd be surprised how many times a few days later they will call back and say, you know what, we really thought about it. And we really, really want to work with you and your team because you really know this area. Linda, how do you promote your open house to get people there? I don't door knock around there anymore. My team does that when they hold open house. We send out e-blasts. We put them on social media. So, by the way, and Facebook is really, really a great way to get deeper with your clients and with your farm. And not by selling ads, but putting put pictures of houses on there. But we promote them through social media. We do e-blasts. We send out about 5,000 emails every time we've got an open house. We make sure that they go out and they're advertised as open house through the MLS. So then they'll go to Trulia, Zillow, Redfin, and they'll be advertised as open house. And it's very interesting, Mike. You'd be surprised. About 50% percent of the traffic that comes into the open house, not coming from the directional arrows, which we also use, but 50% of it is coming from either the social media or from the fact that we've done an e-blast and we put it on site so that people know it's going to be open. I want to switch gears here and talk about your past clients and sphere of influence. You're generating the majority of your business from that group, over 60%. Let's jump into that. Could you first tell us how big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? Our sphere of influence is 1,388, and our past clients is 502. We've sold over 2,000 homes, but one of the things is sometimes people move away 38 years in the business and an older person, you know, people do pass away as well. Uh, Some people move away, but that's what we have in the past client and and sphere of influence is 1388 and 502. The database that we currently market to in different areas, some of it goes into three of graphic farm, but that's, that's how we split that up. We have a 502 and a 1388 and the uh, sphere of influence and the past clients are, you know, see, that's about under 2,000. Wow, you know those numbers very well, very accurately. You must be tracking those numbers in some type of software program. What type of program do you use to track these people? How'd you come up with those spot-on numbers? We use Top Producer. We've used it for years. It really has worked well for us. It's not perfect. No database or uh, CRM really is. But Top Producer, we used, you know, from the beginning with the DOS program, <laughs> when he had to load into his <laughs> computer before it was online, we would always track that. Everybody in the database, the first thing is you have a met, you've, either, you've met them or you haven't met them. You either have 
been face-to-face with the client or you haven't been face-to-face. And then we, we sub it into past client sphere of influence or wherever it's at. Our goal is to meet as many people as we can and bring them into our sphere of influence and then turn them into a client. So it's a natural cultivation process. Tell us more about that selection process. How do you decide who's going to go into your database? What we do is when we start, and for example, let's say that you, we met you in an open house. And yes, everybody's supposed to fill out all their information. They don't always. So what we do is we start by putting them into a drip program. If you have somebody that comes in and they just leave you a e- name and an email address, let's say not phone number, we put them on a drip program. And we basically drip them on our system and get in touch with them, and we work the lead as many times as we can. And sometimes they'll respond, sometimes they won't. We basically keep them on that drip program until they either opt out or they ask us not to bother them anymore. And we just do that continually. Sometimes people come in on an open house, and they're just not ready to buy for two or three years. So you don't want to waste your time treating them a client, but you don't want to forget them either because they're going to remember what you got. Maybe they won't buy anything, but maybe they'll tell their neighbor or their friend or their sister. That's happened a lot. So that's the first thing that we do is we put them on a drip. So we have a process that we use for just like cold leads, internet leads, things like this. And so that's one thing that we select. And then the haven't mets are people that maybe we do a geographic area too, and now we have them in the database because they're part of a farm. So that's a haven't met. And so then we put them on our regular mailers and anything that we do with the e-blast as, long, as soon as we get their email address. And the goal is always to start with a big pool and move them into your inner circle as quickly as you can and contact them until they opt out or tell you not to contact them anymore. You mentioned inner circle. Do you have a smaller group than the 1890 here, the the combined sphere of influence and past clients? Do you have a smaller group that you consider your inner circle? I have what's called VIP. A VIP is anybody in our database that has given us multiple transactions or multiple referrals. And I don't have the exact number on that, but that's right around 100. So, for example, that's a, that's a VIP. That's somebody that we're going to take out to dinner. That's somebody we're always going to involve in party. I'm thinking of my biggest client right now, done 10 transactions with her. And we just closed another one with her, and now we're going to sell her son a house and sell his house. And she just wrote a five-star review on Zillow for us and let everybody know she's done 10 transactions with her. I stay in touch with her really, really well. How did you originally meet her? Was she one of your friends or was she a client that turned into this raving fan? She was somebody that I did charity work with. And one of the things I will say about charity work and working in the community and building your sphere. My husband and I, and in fact, our whole team and our whole office now that we've done this has always been very, very deeply involved in the community. And I'm talking about starting when our kids were little. They played baseball. They played, so- you know, they played soccer. I was always that person who was room mom or team mother, and I always would gather names and at that time addresses and put them on a mailing list and put them in a database. So these people, this person, for example, is somebody that I met doing charity work with. We were involved in soccer, and then we were also involved in community theater together. 
And it's interesting, but when I met her, she had another realtor. And that other realtor actually sold her a house. And then after things happened and we got to know her and her husband, we got very close with them through our charity events. And when her husband passed away, she had a lot of things happen. And we were very close with them. And then we became a realtor for life. And then she became just close. I mean, it was a difficult time. She had young children when this happened. But she was very, very involved in the community. And she's one of those people that just everybody loves. She's very close to us. But that's an example. What happens is because when you are involved in charities and community events and you are in sales, people do not like to be sold to. I always tell people, do not be the realtor that is walking up and down the bleachers at a baseball game handing out business cards. That's awful. You would never do that. People do it, but I would never do that because that turns people off. Don't be that realtor. Be the realtor that sits in the stands and talks and volunteers and lets things come up in conversation. Be that person. And one of the things that I found was when you take leadership positions in volunteer organizations, people decide to do business with you based on they watch your behavior in organization. And they will see the decisions you make. They will see the kind of person you are. And they will do business with you because of the kind of person you are. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Back to the, the big picture of your sphere of influence and your past clients, your big database of the 1890. How do you stay in touch with those folks? How do you stay in front of those folks? Could you give us a, a big outline of your marketing plan to those folks over the course of a year? Yes. We mail to the sphere of influence something every quarter of value. So what we do is we, for example, we send out a calendar at the end of each year. So everybody in the sphere of influence and past clients, they all get a calendar. Everybody loves it. They call me up. Uh, There's a little thing in August that says, you know, make sure you call for your calendar. I get probably 100 phone calls. Don't let me, don't forget the calendar that goes on my refrigerator. We do that. It's a calendar that goes on the refrigerator? Yes, they love it. Just that little magnetic calendar and, you know, you tear off January, February, March. They love it. I have people, I have one client, oh my gosh, she's, you know, so this house and he's 94 now and he calls me every year, Linda, can I have two calendars? Absolutely, Joe, you can have two calendars. It's great. It's just, it's fun. So we stay in touch with them that way. Number two is that sphere of influence I'm very close with in social media. I do not sell them. I comment on their pages. I tell them how much I love the picture of their dog. I congratulate them on their daughter's wedding. I have them tagged in Facebook. And I've I've gone through as many people as I can in the sphere of influence. I go through and I tag on Facebook. You can't believe how many people use Facebook now just to contact me. It's really great. I love being able, I love Facebook because I love being able to 
stay in touch with people and know what's going on in their lives. So the sphere of influence, we tend to do a lot of person-to-person contact with them through Rotary, through the country club, through client events. Anytime we have a big event here, they get an invitation. We don't do the pie contest. We are at the pies at the end of the year, which a lot of people do. But we're going to come up with something. I think we're going to come up with C's candy in December. People are going to come in and get C's candy. That's how we stay in touch with our sphere. And I also write a ton of handwritten notes. It's how I built a lot of my business. A ton of handwritten notes. I write five or ten, four or five days a week. You write these handwritten notes. Sounds like you have an objective. Is your goal to write five or ten a week? Five or ten a day. Oh, five or ten a day. Five or, so this is a goal or an objective for you. How do you decide who you're going to write those cards to and what do you say inside the card? Basically, I go through the sphere and the past clients and I just put something about, I was just thinking about you. I drove by your house the other day or sometimes I'll just call them up. I'll just be driving along and I'll go through my phone list and I'll just say, hey, I just wanted to call and say hi. Drove by your house the other day. I just was thinking about you. I have a list. It says 30 reasons to call people, and there's all kinds of things that you can do. You can send them articles. Sometimes I'll clip out an article, and I'll think, oh, gosh, you know, for example, Debbie the gal I was talking about, you know, her daughter, when she ran for La Miss La Habra, I took an ad out in the program. I'll do things like that. People will ask me to buy ads, you know, in programs for their kids, and I'll do that, and then they'll see that. The personal things and the the calls, it's not real systematic. I should be more systematic on that. I'm not as good as I could be. But I really started remaking that a concentrated effort this year because I was getting away from writing these notes. And I made myself do it and go deeper because I found that people were getting closer to the people I hadn't been in touch with for a while. And we were losing business. One of the things that happens with a handwritten note, Mike, and one of, this is one of the reasons I do it, is because when you really start doing a lot of production and you get very, very busy and very, very visible, a lot of your original clients will start to feel that you're too big and too busy for them if you don't stay in touch. If you just send them a postcard, if you just send them something that's, you know, general mill. When you send them a handwritten note, it blows people away because they think she's that busy. She wrote this note. It's incredible. I mean, you would not believe how effective it is. It's probably the number one piece of advice that I would give anybody starting in business to write five to 10 notes a day. On your sphere of influence, you mentioned initially that you send out a piece of mail once a quarter. You mentioned the calendar magnet that goes out. What other pieces are you mailing out? We send scratch pads out. Uh, so the other three mail outs are scratch pads? Other three mail outs are scratch pads with some kind of an update that we appreciate you. Sometimes we'll put that in there. We send them something of value once a quarter. They're also getting our email blast on a regular basis because we do certain things that we send to everybody in the database. For example, putting the geographic farm in with the you know, with the old farm, you know, we send a lot of times we'll do one mass mailer. We'll, we'll just send out, uh, for example, the 2014 postcard of everything that we sold. That's going to everybody. So that's going to go out to the past clients and it's going to go out to the sphere of influence. Four times a year, we send them something of value. People do like those scratch pads. So that goes out once a quarter. 
And then in between times, we will let them know about client events. We'll call them. We'll email them. So, for example, when we had a grand opening, everybody found out about that. Everybody that's a fear of influence or past client, they will be invited to the shredding event in April. So we try to keep them informed that way. You've mentioned a, a nice outline of everything you're doing for your sphere of influence. Do you do anything else or different for your past clients? What we do with our past clients, we really try to socially mix people together. So, for example, one of the events that we did is this community theater that I had talked about where we knew people. For several years before uh, they changed their format, we would buy the theater out for one night. So, for example, theater had 144 seats, and we find that we could invite five or 600 people and 144 seats. We could, you know, at least everybody was like, wow, we are invited to this. And we'd buy the theater out, which cost us about $800, and we invite people there with their children, and we would have dinner beforehand and face painting and some prizes. And we always did a children's play because, you know, we don't want to have alcohol involved in an event like that for a children's event. And then we would do, at intermission, we would do a drawing and give out prizes and serve dessert. So it worked out really, really well. We did it for several years until they changed the format of the theater. So now what we do, instead of one big event, we actually cluster this sphere of influence in the past clients. So my husband and I like to take people out to dinner up at the country club because that's easy. They get to go to a nice dinner. There's no issue with paying. It's beautiful. And sometimes what we find we do with the sphere and the the past clients is we'll cluster people together who maybe haven't seen each other in a while, but they knew each other. Because we find as people age, they tend to, sometimes when their kids grow up, uh, sometimes their networks and their relationship get a little bit fractured. So we like to bring people together. For example, we had a Super Bowl party at our house, and we had eight couples there. And they were all past clients, but people that knew each other, and we just all had a great time. So we we try to cluster people together because we do want to make people feel special. You're putting on, it sounds like small parties or small get-togethers, and you're talking, you you keep calling it a cluster. You're clustering a group of uh, people that you think will work well together. You're creating a, a social network for them, but on a small scale. Tell us more about the different events, these small cluster events that you're doing. You said you have the Super Bowl party. You'll do a dinner up at the country club. Like how many people would you invite to that? What are some of the other activities that you do and and how many people are you inviting each time? Okay, so here's an example of some of the things we've done this year. For example, my husband and I love to golf. And so we will oftentimes when, you know, because we're involved in a lot of charities, you know, we have to buy foursomes, things like that. So, for example, here's an idea that we did for one group. We had last year, we're on an educational foundation for the, the elementary school district. My husband chairs a lot of charity golf tournaments. So, Tim will chair a golf tournament. And what we did was we bought two foursomes to the tournament. So, what we did, we, that gave us an opportunity for, we each had a foursome. So, we had three people that golfed that we knew. So, we had six golfers that we brought. So that was the one thing we did. Then we also knew, because a lot of these charity golf tournaments, they've got golf, but they have dinner because not everybody golfs. So what we did to help the charity, we bought two tables for the charity that sat 10 people per table. 
So then we were able to, and it's like $30. So we spent $300, so $600, and the foursome was probably $700 a foursome. So we brought 20 people for dinner. That was $600. And then we brought six people for golf. So that's probably that probably ended up being about 800. So that was our budget for taking all these people together and we formed this specifically with people that had been involved in the district that we knew were past clients but hadn't seen each other. So the guest list was very intentional. Yes, we spent money, but number one it's a write-off to a charity. We give back to charity. What we try to do is when we buy something, we want to make sure it's something that we give back. So if you're buying a golf for some and dinner for a charity, it's going back to the charity, so it's a win-win. And then you put all these people together that know you, and they really spend a lot of time at night just talking about how much they love you to each other. So it's very effective. And then the people in the charity, the leadership, see what you're doing, and then they're thinking, wow, look what they're doing. They're helping us make money. And they're bringing all these wonderful people in. Some of them volunteer when they leave. It's great. It's a win-win. It's very intentional that way. And that's why we, tr- we started breaking it up more than one big event because we found a lot of our database that were dear to us did not necessarily always have the same goals, the same ideas of what they thought was fun. My guess from what you've been telling me so far is that the folks that you're inviting to these cluster events, these small, more intimate events, are these the people in your VIP group, the 100 core people that have done repeat business with you and referrals? Yes, that's the core. That's our VIP. So those are the people that we really, really stay very close to. Anything else that you're doing for those real close awesome, raving fan, VIP people that we haven't talked about so far? I call them up a lot and just talk to them. I send them birthday cards. I really try to notice when things are happening. I'm at the dollar store a lot, Mike, and I'm buying like boxes of birthday cards and boxes of new grandma cards. And that's what I love about Facebook because if I don't hear about it, I can, you know, it pops up and I'm like, oh gosh, you know, Cindy's daughter's pregnant. I'm going to send, uh, and it's Cindy's first grandchild. I'm going to send her a new grandma card. You know, I just say, welcome to the grandma club because I have two grandchildren. It's all fun because it's all part of life, Mike. It's really about just loving what you do and loving the people that you serve. And so I really do try to stay in touch, and I just want them to know we care. And I found that over the years that, you know, we all go through metamorphosis of our own paths. And I found that you really have to constantly remind people how much you care. And if you're good at what you do and you remind them how much you care, you're going to get most of the business. You might miss something. You Things out of your control. There could go buy a house from somebody else just because the you know you don't always get all the business. And that's the other thing. If somebody is close to you and they do business with somebody else for there are reasons people will do that and you really have to stay humble and grateful and listen for whatever reason they decided not to and realize that that doesn't mean that they're not an advocate of yours anymore because they'll probably still tell 10 people how great you are. Linda, when you're talking with your sphere of influence, your past clients, 
do you ask directly for referrals or do you let it just happen just more organically? You know, Mike, I'm pretty direct person, but I am not a real direct person when it comes to saying, hey, can you just let me know about anybody that's buying or selling? I'm not really strong with that. What I do is I really just say, hey, I just want to let you know we we got this house in your neighborhood. Do you guys know anybody that wants to move in? That's the kind of thing that I do. I'm more indirect. And then again, I'm going back to the communication thing because a lot of people, if you're dealing with the DISC format, the DISC, 25% of people are direct and 75% of people are indirect. So I try to always remember to being indirect it is usually going to work more. Linda, I think you just gave us a great script for the indirect referral request. One of my questions I was going to ask is if you're indirect, then how do people know you're in real estate? And I think you just gave a great answer, which was you tell them you just listed a home and you ask them if they know of anyone who might be interested in it. That's indirect, but it makes sure that they know that you're in real estate and it gives them the opportunity to to talk about it. Absolutely, because everybody wants to know who their neighbor is going to be. And there's a lot of fear involved in a neighborhood when a sign goes up, especially if you've got a good neighbor. You don't want to get a bad neighbor. So I'll call them up and say, hey, the sign's going up. You know, and I know how much you guys love your neighborhood. Do you know anybody that you'd like to live next door to? Because I'd love to get them over there so you guys can, you know, because I know how much you love living there. And it's interesting because indirect people, they don't see that as threatening. People are so cold-called and so everything now, everything, everything, that I just, it's not my style. I like to be a little bit different, and I don't, you know, if somebody called me up and said, do you want to sell your house? If I wanted to sell my house, I'd probably tell that person no. That's what works for us, and that's what works for the people that we serve. You've mentioned several times that you work with your husband, Tim. How long have you and Tim been working together? Tim and I have been married for 40 years in April, and we have been working together since 1999. So that was, say, halfway into your career, a little past halfway. Why did you all start working together? It was actually my husband's idea. He was a general manager for a company. They were in the office products industry, so they were a commercial stationer. And my husband saw the writing on the wall that the industry was changing, And he knew that being in his mid-40s at the time, that that would not be probably something that he wasn't going to be real marketable if that happened. And so he came home one day and he says, I want to get my real estate license and I want to go into real estate with you. And I have to be really honest here, I was not thrilled. (laughs) I was definitely not thrilled. (laughs) Um. And I'm glad you asked this question because this is one of the great mysteries of our industry and growing with husband and wife team. So I'm I'm glad you asked me about this because it ended up being the most wonderful thing that ever happened to our team. And it also ended up being something where we really, really had to work on our marriage in a different way. And we had to adapt. And I'm a very independent person. But, you know, we have a very wonderful, fabulous marriage. We do now and we always have. Not that we haven't, you know, we don't go through things like everybody else. But I had to completely change my working style. My husband and I have very different personalities. I'm a high DI, 
and he's a high SC, so he's very detail-oriented and methodical, and I'm more of a just fly by the seat of my pants and being very direct. And at home, it was different because he also had that consistent income with full benefits, so I was very threatened when we had to change and he came into the business because I was always worried about, you know, what was going to happen. And he has been such a wonderful, wonderful asset to our business. Our roles have evolved during the course, especially with the ownership of this office. But one thing I wanted to say is that we've gone through times in in the career and the marriage where the hardest thing for me is that you go through these different roles at work and these different roles at home. And I actually went back to school, so I'm no longer a college dropout, by the way, but I actually went back to school in my 50s and got a college degree. And one of the reasons that I went back to school is I was trying to find answers that would make things smoother at work and at home. And I was shocked by the fact that there was almost zero research available academically in family business. The only thing that was available when I started studying this was the the model where the husband was the rainmaker and the wife was the secretary. That's the only thing that was ever studied. And that's not how it is nowadays. It's completely different. So you have a lot of you have a lot of conflict that goes on in our industry because a lot of people now are creating family businesses. Husband and wife are working together and there's a lot of issues that people really don't discuss and go into. And I think we've done a really great job, but it's always a work in, in progress. We've got some boundaries that we use between our work and our marriage that really suit us very, very well. Could you go into that a little bit? For instance, you guys have been working this out now for 15, 16 years. You have a lot of experience that you could share with anyone thinking about or currently running a, a team with a spouse. You mentioned roles, boundaries. I assume that you ran into challenges and you've also found solutions. Could you give us some of those big picture ideas that you've used to make this run smoothly and work well? Yes, Mike. The first thing that I would recommend that you do is that each partner has to have a really clearly defined role. So you really need job descriptions. I mean, there's all kinds of areas that you're going to, you have to, because you have to work out the finances. The finances become a play, the time together. Sometimes some people work really, really well together, being together 24-7. Some people don't. I know couples that work in the same office, in fact, the same room. We don't do that. We tried that. It worked for about a week, and it was awful. Then we, then we worked in separate buildings, and that worked really well. We have separate offices and separate buildings for a while. It's the old company. Now we each have separate offices, but we're on separate floors, so that works. So number one is you have to find out what works for you as a couple, and you have to do two things. You have to define on, look at what your role is as a couple, Number two, what are you both good at and what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? Define that. And then number three is you you define the jobs. So, for example, I am very strong at listing. That's my niche. If I can go in and walk out with a listing, that's my one thing. That's my strength. My husband can list property. He's better with buyers than me because he's more patient. 
So he can take somebody out for six months that he knows qualified, and he's really good with buyers. So when we started, he started working with almost all the buyers on the team. So that's the first thing we did. We used to find the roles. Then my husband's also better at detail. I am better at, I'm more of a big picture thinker. So we had to define that, and we had to learn to respect and appreciate our differences better. On boundaries, we really have set times we talk about work, and when we go home, we don't talk about it as much. So there's certain nights we'll go out to dinner and talk about work, and there's certain nights, you know, we'll just say not. I get up early in the morning and I do my thinking. I'm an early riser and my husband's a night owl. So I will do my thinking and things at like 4 o'clock in the morning quietly. He does that usually in the evening between like 8 and 9. He'll go out on the patio with a glass of wine, and he'll sit there and do his thinking, and that's when he resolves what he does. So you have to respect what works for each person, what works for you as a couple together, and you're constantly going to be negotiating your business and your marriage, and you just have to be, you just have to run and ride with it. And we're very fortunate, and one of the things that we both feel very passionately now is that we feel that it's really important that we try to give back to other agents and help them with this and talk about it and talk about some of our quirks and some of the things we haven't done so well. Linda, thank you so much for sharing that. Linda, could you tell us about your team? We have a team of seven and laughing because I just thought, gosh, do we really have seven people now? But this is how it works. My husband and I both take listings and, and work with buyers. And we have an administrative person who does all administrative work. She coordinates listings, writes contracts, things like that. Actually, and I'm thinking about this, I think, we, I think I'm wrong. We actually have a team of six because when I put the administrative assistant down here, she also works as a buyer specialist. So we have a team of six. The admin person in this particular role also shows property. So I'm the rainmaker. My husband and Chris are buyer specialists, but Lori doubles actually as an admin and a buyer specialist. I know that sounds odd, but that's how it works. Then we just hired a marketing and tech specialist. That is our son, Ryan. Our son, Ryan, is a graduate with film degree, worked in Hollywood for a few years until a lot of the jobs dried up and left Hollywood, and then asked to come back and give it a shot on our team, and he's doing great. He does a lot of our marketing. He's doing our video marketing, tech specialist. He's also getting a real estate license because he does want to transform into sales. And then we have a transaction coordinator who's Claudia, and that we outsource per transaction. Let me just make sure I got that right. Do you have three buyer specialists or two buyer specialists? So Tim is a buyer specialist, Chris is a buyer specialist, and then Lori doubles as admin and buyer specialist because she does show property. So that would actually be three. So we have one person that's wearing two hats, and that's Lori, and she's quite incredible. That's how she can do that. That's a little bit outside of most people's model, but it ended up just evolving that way when we had, we had to do a little bit of downsizing during the, the Great Recession. And so when we came through, we found out that Lori had so much talent showing property, and we've been able to outsource some of the things that we do 
so for example, she used to do all the marketing. We outsourced that, south of that. We brought Ryan in, but we can outsource some of the things so that she doesn't have to, she's not overloaded. There's times when she'll get overloaded. She's not selling much right now because we took so many listings and she's involved in that. So that actually, I would say that if you count that we actually do have three buyer specialists and myself. I don't work with buyers very, very rarely. I work all listings. And then with Ryan being the marketing and tech specialist, on the higher end, the other reason we hired Ryan is because of the higher end, you really need somebody. These are not properties that are shown through lockbox. You need somebody to go open up those properties. You need somebody to constantly have feedback with the client. So that was something that he was able to do, especially when you have multiple properties that need to be opened and shown. It's really, really working out really well. Linda, is your team profitable? Yes. Our profit last year was approximately 43%, and that includes all the salaries. So, yes, we are profitable. When you say salaries, are you paying yourself a salary? Yes. And so the 43% is after you've paid yourself a salary? That's correct. Now, that was on last year's salary. This year, we did take a raise. I took a raise based on my accountant and based on the way that our tax planning is. So I gave myself a raise this year, so I don't know how much of that's going to be. But last year, with us paying ourselves a salary, we, we had 43% profit. You mentioned earlier that you have just started a a new project here. You've opened up a new office about 15 months ago, a new franchise office. Could you tell us why did you decide so late in your career to open a franchise office and what have you learned in the last 15 months? Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can see that, uh, you know, I opened an office when I was 60 years old and I got my college degree when I was 58. So I'm kind of a late bloomer. (laughs) I like to do things. Um, It's interesting. We were with a different brand for a long time. And our CEO was an amazing man and did a lot for us because we were lucky. It was a, it was, um, it was a company with 22 offices, and my husband and I were fortunate enough to be number one out of those 22 offices for eight out of 10 years. So we were very fortunate. One time we had, they had over 2,000 agents. But I was becoming more and more disgruntled about the local management, and it was just a different style of management that was actually going on in the actual offices and in the company. It was very anti-team. It was not an environment of growing and learning. It was more of an environment as this is the way that we do things, so that we need to do things. And I found that once I got my college degree and learned, my degree is in intercultural and organizational communication. And once I really started learning about leadership and business culture and things, I found that when I went back to that environment, it actually became unbearable for me. And I was really starting to lose my passion for my job. So, interestingly enough, what happened was one of my colleagues from Rotary, 38-year-old businessman who owned a commercial real estate company, asked us to have lunch one day and said, I really want to open up a residential real estate company because he had owned an escrow company as well. And he said, I really want you to be our partner, my partner. And we were like, no, we don't want to. I would win one and open an office every time, you know, every manager I've ever worked with never looks like he's happy. 
it's always complaining how bad it is and how the agents have it so good and how much they hate management. And so I thought, I want to do this. So what happened was, and I said, you know, we had a particular franchise we mined. We said, look, if we can get this, I knew what we wanted to do. I knew the model we wanted. And he just pushed us. And we finally, everything just came together. It really was something that was incredible. And it came together because of the talent we had. Number one, we went into business with somebody that has a lot of strengths and a lot of knowledge that we don't know about because Tim didn't, and I didn't know anything about negotiating commercial leases or getting rental space outside. We knew nothing about that. We hadn't done any build-outs. So what happened was we had found a location. We actually found a manager to manage the company, and we got all the talent, four of us in the room, and we all had a vision. We found that all four of us had the same vision. And the minute we gave notice and decided to open, all of a sudden it came together. It was incredible. We started with three people. We have 117 agents now. Next month, we'll probably, we will be number one in our marketplace in 15 months. Many of our top competitors came to work with us. And it is the most incredible thing to think that we are a part of this. I still don't believe it. I still don't believe when we walk into this building every day how lucky we are. How did you have the courage to pull the trigger on that at 60 years old? Uh, well, Jason's our partner, and he just kept on me. He's just like a bulldog. And he just said, you've got to do this. And I knew in my heart, and, I, and really I can thank my wonderful husband for this, because I said, you have to make this decision. You have to believe in it, because it was going to change. My husband's what's called the operating principal, so he's the person who manages the manager, and he's the liaison for the franchise. And it's a lot it's a lot of work, especially when you're in the launch phase. So I said, you're the one that's gonna, it's gonna change your role more, so you're the one that's gonna tell me yes or no. And he said, we have to do this no matter what. We just can't stay here. This is something that is going to be incredible. But we just took a leap of faith, Mike. That's all it was. And it was so scary. And it was so hard to leave. I hadn't moved my license since 1977. Oh, oh, it was so scary. And I can't believe, um, I, you know, Napoleon Hill said that mastermind, the definition of mastermind is when you get two people together, a third mind appears in the room. And that's what's happened with this company. The talent we have, that's why we we have market share because it's the talent and it's we truly love each other. It wasn't like that. There was no other company out there like this. I mean, we compete and we truly love each other. It's incredible. I'm sure there are going to be people listening that want to know how did you grow so fast from three people to 117 agents in just 15 months? Well, one of the things I want to do is I want to thank a couple of your past interviewees. One of them is Terry Moeller, and one of them is Leslie McDonald. Perry and Leslie taught me very early in my career, because I've been fortunate enough to be friends with them for many years, that your relationships with your fellow agents are just as important as your relationships with your clients. And we have always tried to be very fair. We are top producers, but you know, we've really, Tim and I have really tried to 
not have a big ego about things. We've tried to be humble. We've tried to be grateful. And we've really tried to make an example of that. And a lot of people always say, you know, I met you. I couldn't believe it. You know, I was afraid to meet you. And then you're so nice. And I'm like, well, easy to be nice. (laughs) That's not a big deal. (laughs) So what happened was when we opened the company, because of that, this talent came to us. This talent. The day we came notice, I put it on Facebook. And... um, I did, we did it very strategically. We did it the night of 4th of July, knowing that everybody's going to be closed. Because when you do something like this and no one had any idea, it's you have to do a lot of stuff. Um, you know, just, you just have to work a lot in the background and try to keep everything as um, quiet as possible until you actually launch. But one of the things that happened was that we had the office across the street had just let one of their managers go who was a fine person and a great realtor and he called us up and he wanted to come to work with us as an agent. So he came and he brought some of the people from his office and then we had people from our old office that came and it just kind of exploded. And the one thing I will tell you is hire great talent and that's what we've always tried to do. And our team leader who is our manager recruiter, Jim Crotwell, is an amazingly talented recruiter leader, and human being. And the people that we have in our office, they're not just top people, they're good people. We all have, all of our core values align. And we'd have a bigger office, Mike, but there's a lot of people that we don't want in here. Not a lot, but there's a, there are some top people that have just called us up and asked us, really want to come to work here, and we do not, we will not hire them because we know that it's not going to be a fit for our organization. You're looking for fit. You're screening people on the way in to make sure that they're going to fit with your organization. You're not in a desperation mode where you will take anyone. Not at all. We do not hire anyone. We tell people we are not a body shop. We have some new agents, but we will not just take people just because somebody walked in the door and can saw the mirror. We really try to hire talent, and we try to get to know people to make sure It's just like, Mike, building an office is just like building a database or building a team. It's the same principle. It's just getting to know people, getting the right people around you, checking to see with the organization who's well. I mean, we have an incredible time together. We have happy hour once a month. We all get together. We have lunches. We have birthday parties. We have celebrations. I came from an office in an environment where our broker said, Work is not for fun. Work is for work. You have fun outside of the office. Well, we have fun every day, and we work hard and we play hard, and we are just kind of knocking everybody out around here. It's kind of fun. Well, Linda, what drives you? My big why, and my big why is my family, my fun, and my future, and my friends. My big why is I laugh because, you know, we talk about the disc profile, you know, are, are you driven because of results. Yes, I love results, but I I laugh. I say, I'm a natural I that became a D to pay for all the fun I want to (laughs) have. Pretty much. My family, uh, our family, and when I mean our family, I also mean we have grandchildren on the East Coast, and uh, our oldest son is an attorney back there, and so we spend a lot of time on airplanes or flying them out. So constantly 
we love travel, so it, it all works out. But, you know, spend a little more money and leverage your time a little bit more to be a really good grandparent when you're 3,000 miles away. And so that big why drives me very much. I enjoy being respected and appreciate, I, you know, I, I, I love the emotional connection with the client and I also love the emotional connection now in the leadership role with our agents. What drives me has really in the last 15 months changed a lot because I used to be driven by my own personal success. Now I'm driven by the success of the people on my team and the people in our organization. That's really what drives me. One of my goals this year is for each buyer's agent to make a minimum of $100,000 this year. I want to see them perform. Zig Ziglar said, if you help other people get what they want, then you will get what you want. And that is absolutely the truth. And I was born driven. I grew up with very, very little. I had great parents, but we didn't have a lot of money. So I always knew that I wanted to go to a different level. I knew I wanted to travel. I went, I knew I wanted things. I wanted to be able to give my kids great educations and thank the Lord we've been able to do that. Linda, why have you been so successful? One of the things I'm very, very fortunate is, is that I'm really, really good at getting listings. I learned right out of the chute to become a listing agent. And that was the one thing that my training originally said, become a listing agent. Whatever you are, become a listing agent, because as a young mother, I had to learn how to control my time better. I am not a naturally organized and disciplined person. I know Rob Levy said that 70% of great realtors have some sort of ADD. (laughs) That would be me. (laughs) So I had to really work on my habits. So I had to work on my habits. I had to work on my focus. And that, now that trying to be a, a leader in, the orga- in an organization as well as a team. I've had to get better at my habits as I've gotten older. I haven't been able to slack off where a lot of people are able to do that. No, I've had to drill down the last 15 months and get better, more consistent. We had a dip in production last year, and the main reason for the dip in production was just because of that natural progression that happens when you open an office and you're trying to handle your own business and deal with explosive growth at the same time. That won't happen this year, but I've had to get really intentional about my own habits, what we've done and the systems have had to tweak the system. So Mike, I've actually had to work harder, not easier, but I really think our best success is yet to come. Linda, if you're going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? The first thing that I would tell them is there's some things not just don't forget. Number one, it's always about the client. Never, ever, ever forget that. It's always going to be about the client. Whenever you're trying to make a decision, you put the client first, always. And whatever you do, it's all going to work out. So the first thing that I would do, I would say is don't forget that it's going to be about the client. Number two, you want to build a foundation of relationships in your business. The first thing you want to do is when you get into real estate, you want to make sure that everybody knows that you know is in real estate and you want to start immediately meeting as many people as you can, keeping track of them. You always want to be building a database no matter how long you're in the business. 
And from day one, you want to build a database. And everybody has one. They just don't know they do. So that's how you want to do that. Number three, I would say go to work on a team to learn from the best. I would recommend if somebody, if you have an opportunity to hold open houses for a top agent, don't expect a top agent to take you time to take you to lunch. Or, and if you ask them to be your mentor, they're probably going to tell you no just because they don't have time. Show the top agent you can do something for them. Ask them if you can sit open house with them or sit one of their open houses for them. Ask them what you can do for them, not what they can do for you. But what happens is if you're able to watch a top agent in production, anything you can do with them, then you will learn from them. Our team shadows us. That's how they learn. They watch me. So I would just say you want to remember it's about the client. You want to build a relationships, the relationships, and then you want to watch somebody and listen to tapes like your series. Everybody should be listening to one of your series at least once a day because that's how all of us that are successful learn. It was from other people. Well, Linda, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? I just want to say that I'm very, very grateful and very, very lucky. I always say that thanks to the good Lord and the fact that I married a good man and I went into real estate when I was young, that's probably accountable for 90% of my success. What I want to say is new agents coming into the business, you've got a great world ahead of you. You have the opportunity as a realtor to change lives. You can teach somebody how to build wealth. You can find the first home for somebody, and you can be part of their joy and their dream for the rest of their life. You also have the opportunity to take that and bring it back to your own family and your own community. Because if you really believe in what we do, homeownership is such an amazing thing. So coming into this business, just know that we need you. We always need people that have passion and care about other people. And never, never forget that when you choose real estate, you've chosen a life of purpose. Well, Linda, you've led a life of purpose. You showed us that real estate is a marathon, not a sprint. Agents have to be persistent. And you are. You kept going after failing your first licensing exam. You kept going after not selling a home your first five months in the business. You went back to college and achieved your degree at 58 years old. You opened your first brokerage at age 60. You are tenacious. I can't wait to see what you achieve during the next 10 years of your career. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 173 homes last year worth $31 million. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss 
their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.